We have the opportunity now to look at the Word of God together in this five-part mini-series, this being the third of those five, on the fear of man versus the fear of God. This is a little mini-series in between our expositions of First and Second Thessalonians, and as the British would say, we shall return to Second Thessalonians in due course. But for this particular season in the life of our church, I thought it was very, very important for us, especially as my own heart was warmed and educated and taught regarding this very, very important matter of the evangelization of the lost and the edification of the saints. The fear of man would be what I refer to when I talk about the evangelization of the lost. The edification of the saints is what I'm referring to when I talk about the building up of Christians who want to fear the Lord. Now, you remember when I introduced this subject a couple of Sundays ago, I mentioned to you that the Bible speaks of three kinds of fear in that structure of the fear of, dot, 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 the fear of. Proverbs 29, 25 talks about the fear of man. Hebrews chapter 2, which we'll look at this morning, talks about the fear of death. And 1 John 4 speaks of the fear of punishment upon death. And it seems to me that the fear of man, the fear of death, and the fear of punishment upon death are the three ways that describe the concept of those who are gripped in such fear, fear being the sense of not just being afraid of, but also a constitutional way of talking about unbelievers. For if you think of unbelievers, you think of them in this way. You think about the fact that they are on a horizontal plane. They have no vertical relationship with God. They don't look to God for his favor. They don't look to God for their salvation. They don't look to God for their encouragement. They don't look to God for their eternity. They are completely encapsulated in a world, in a sphere, in which they only think in terms of what man is and what man does. It's kind of like a closed spectrum. It's a spectrum in which they're only involved in what men think, including themselves, and chiefly and most importantly, their own thoughts about themselves and about the world. They think only about themselves in terms of life and living. They think about themselves in terms of who they are in relation to others and who others are in relation to them. They think on a completely horizontal level and mostly on that level they're thinking about themselves and how they can progress in their lives and how others need to do often exactly what they want. And when those others don't do what they want, they're discouraged, maybe even angry. 
and they sometimes either in their hearts or actually in their lives and through their lips speak invectives against other people. You're not giving me what I want. You're not doing for me what I need. But you see, those who are living constitutionally under that title, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, we think on both a horizontal level, that is, we love mankind and we serve others, particularly those in the household of faith, but all others. And because of that vertical relationship with God, we also love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. I've just articulated, haven't I, the two great commandments, love God and love neighbor. But that's not the way that people who fear man, fear mankind, fear not always in the sense of being afraid, but fear in the sense of I revere. You might even say it like this, the fear of man is the revere of man. The fear of God is the revere of God, to reverence him, to worship him, to see him as high and holy and lifted up, to see him as glorious, to magnify him, to to speak of him often with others, even in the midst of their criticisms for your doing so. This is This is why we reach out far beyond the the human endeavor to think about the eternal. If you and I were to sum it up as I believe these passages are that we've been looking at, not only for the last two messages but in this one, we would see that the fear of man is a gripping terror. But not all see it that way because that's where they want to live. Not not in terror, but they want to live in the realm of man, thinking about things that will bring them the greatest happiness in that human realm. They don't think about the divine. They don't think about divine things. They don't think about eternity. They They don't think about it unless someone brings it up, unless someone is evangelizing them, unless someone is challenging them, unless someone is loving them enough to tell them the truth, and usually you'll get quite a backlash. Now, they may, some of them, be kind about it, but the idea is that if, in fact, you challenge them to revere God rather than man as the constitutional makeup of their life, as the habit of their life, those can be fighting words. Those can bring great disagreement. But, of course, we know that God uses the message of the gospel, to to revere the Lord, to follow the Lord, to be delivered by Him, uh, to be forgiven of your sins, to be redeemed from a lifestyle of not loving God but loving yourself, revering yourself. And God uses that, doesn't He? He uses the gospel message to bring people supernaturally the miracle of regeneration where their eyes are opened and they see the truth that God is real, that Jesus is Lord, that the Holy Spirit has caused them to now begin to think new thoughts that they never thought before. Wasn't that your experience? It certainly was mine. And so if you put these two categories, these these mammoth ideas, the fear of man and the fear of God in juxtaposition to each other, you're going to find that one has its own worldview and the other has its own worldview. 
That's really what the Bible is telling us when it talks about the fear of man versus the fear of the Lord. I've quoted it for you now, of course, many times in the first two messages, and I'll just allude to it here, Proverbs 29, 25, especially for those of you who might be here for the very first time or you haven't heard the first two messages. It says, the fear of man brings a snare or a trap. Now, is it true that believers can sometimes be entrapped by thinking of and being emboldened to and responding in such fear, such fear of what man thinks? Of course. But if you're really a believer, if you're really a Christian, if you're really a God-fearer, while you can struggle with that at times, it's not constitutionally the habit of your life. And that's an important distinction. You fear God. And you remember what I said about fearing God. Fearing God is, is this, if it's helpful and memorable to you. It, it's constitutive of, of two things. Now, they are, inter, uh, they, are, they are overlapping each other. They're interrelated. But the fear of God is holy reverence and healthy dread. Holy reverence and healthy dread. And if you want another category, because we're thinking about horizontal and vertical living, it's also something that we could say, this fear of God, this holy reverence and healthy dread, is something that's connected, again, interrelated and overlapping, not so distinct as though they're not related to each other at all, but there are two things that we think about our God, and that is that He is both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent and imminent. What does it mean, the transcendence of God? Transcendence means, as correlative to the idea of this holy reverence, that God is high. God is mighty. He's almighty. He's supreme. He's the sovereign of the universe. He dictates our lives. He created us. And he also is Lord of our lives. He's Lord of us as that one who created us, but he's also Lord of our lives because he is Lord. We don't make him Lord, he is Lord. And because he's, because he's high and lofty and lifted up, because he's wholly other than we are, without sin, almighty, vanquishes all of his foes, He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent. He's grace and mercy and love. And he dispenses steadfast love to all of his people. That's the transcendence of God. And that's why I say that the transcendence of God is something for which we need to have holy reverence. Holy reverence. And related to that and interrelated to that is the concept of imminence, imminence. What do we mean by that? Imminence means the nearness of God. You see, it's true that our Bibles talk about God's transcendence. They talk about God's holiness and His majesty and His holy otherness. Yes, He is transcendent. But don't forget, He's also near to us. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's in His world. He's in his created universe. We're not talking about pantheism or panentheism. We're talking about a kind of nearness, a kind of God who comes to us to not only help meet our needs, but to be with us, 
and to take care of us and to feed us and clothe us and shepherd us and bring us along, not just when we're hurting, but also when we're crying out to him in prayer and when we're praising him in song, both individually and corporately. And when we do that, the eminence of God means that there is a healthy dread because this God is transcendent. He's holy, and I don't want holy God in my presence because I'll be incinerated because I'm a sinner. And yet God accommodates himself, particularly and uniquely in the person of his son, the God-man, who came to earth from the glories of heaven to come and to dwell with us, and not only to dwell with us, but also to be in us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What a gift. What a gracious gift. God is near to us. Oh, yes, he's transcendent, and we have a holy reverence of his name and his person and his power and his will and his commands and his injunctions and his warnings. And you and I can become at times even seeing God as quite foreboding in that holiness and that almighty character. But that holy reverence can give way also to a healthy dread, a a dread of the immensity of God and the holiness of God, that he is sinless and we are sinful, but he knows that. And he comes to us in the person of Jesus who is gentle and lowly. And he sent his son to die on the cross for sinners like us so that we could be brought near, as the writer to Hebrews says. He's brought us near in fellowship, in kindness, mercy, grace, love. Oh, there's a dread. There's a dread of the immensity of his transcendence, but there's also a sweetness and a, and a beauty that the gentle and lowly Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come into our midst to not only save our sins, but to be the shepherd of our souls. That's a, that's a healthy dread. I don't, I don't bother him if I come into his bosom and seek help and counsel and I come to him with my needs and he doesn't brush me off or say he's too busy. He's, he's near me. In fact, he's, he's in me, resides in the sweet consolations of my needs and wants, yes, but even in that sense of companionship when I'm lonely. He comes into my heart with fresh revelations from the Word of God when I read the pages of Holy Scripture and I'm reminded again and again and again that God is near. Anybody ever read the Psalms and said to yourself, I'm so comforted by these Psalms because they tell me over and over and over again that God is near to us, near to the brokenhearted, near to even those who are rejoicing and and who are blissful and happy and who are seen as those who are of all human beings most blessed because he's no longer our judge, but he's our father. This is, this is what we're talking about when we talk about the fear of God. And therefore, I want to, after the two messages that I've given, give you a sense now in this third and in the fourth 
next Lord's Day, Lord willing, and then in the fifth as we wrap all of this up just before Palm Sunday, I want to talk more now in this mini-series about the fear of the Lord. We've talked a lot in the first two messages about the fear of man, and it can be, it can be overwhelming, it can be troubling, it can be convicting, and now I want to see us be convicted about the fear of the Lord. The poetic writings or the wisdom literature are replete with this idea of the fear of the Lord. In fact, if you just looked at the Bible as a whole, do you realize that this is such a dominant theme, this idea of the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the holy? And by the way, Isaac at one point actually calls God, are you ready for this, the fear. That's his name, the fear. Not not in that foreboding sense, not in that scared sense, not in that anxiety-producing sense, but fear in the sense of the one I revere. This is, this is something that is so important in our Bibles that the fear of the Lord is mentioned more than 150 times. I don't know about you, but I think that's a lot. I think that's a resounding theme, and a theme like that ought to occupy our minds and our hearts, and I've endeavored to make it a part of my own thinking over these last weeks and months because it is not so just so intriguing, it's also something for which I bow down to understand, right? So I want you to see, we'll talk about maybe the prophets uh, next Lord's Day, but now I want you to see in the wisdom writings this concept of fear. And I'm going to be sharing with you some of the passages that use explicitly the word fear, and it's the concept of what we've said, the holy reverence of God and the healthy dread of God, the transcendence of God and also the eminence of God. But it also isn't limited just to the word fear itself. It's also wrapping up all other kinds of conceptual links that bring us to words like awe and reverence and holy and majestic and glorious. But they're all talking about this fear of the transcendent, imminent God. So let's do that. Let's go to the book of Job. Let's go there first. Job 28. Job 28, I'm just going to take you through a boatload of passages for which I either want you to write down, but I'd also love for you, even if you don't write it down, uh, although I'd love for you to do so that you, you, so that you could look back on these things at your leisure, but that you also try to go to these passages in your own Bible, because I want you to see them through your own eyes. Job 28. Job 28 is Job talking about the wisdom of God and particularly the question, where is wisdom? Where can wisdom be found on the earth? Where is it? And he goes through this entire chapter and when he's done, he gives you the answer. It's almost as though the whole of the chapter is an interrogatory. It's a series of questions. Where is it? Where can I find it? Is it to be found, this wisdom? And then he answers his own question in verse 28 of Job 28. And he, God, said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil 
is understanding. You see those two aspects of the fear of the Lord? It's wisdom, that's the fear of the Lord, and from its negative vantage point, to turn away from evil is understanding. So if you want to talk positively, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. If you want to talk negatively, negatively, to turn away from evil is understanding. If you turn away from evil, you'll have understanding. If you fear the Lord, you'll have wisdom. That's what he's saying. And I can't help, even though it's not explicitly stated here, I can't help but thinking about the fear of man and the fear of the Lord when it's talking about Wisdom with the fear of the Lord, that reminds me of Abel and his righteousness, and the turning away from evil and one who did not with murderous hatred, that's Cain. Remember, we've been talking about that. Abel is that glorious example of a righteous man whom God accepted, and Cain is an unrighteous man, a murderous, hating man for whom God rejected. The fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. You see, in that And that circle and circumference of of man's world, man's views, man's life, man's lifestyle, man's thinking, man's actions, reactions, man's impulses, man's lusts, man's desires, he does not live in the wisdom of the fear of the Lord. This is what it's saying. And if you go from Job in the the wisdom literature, right to the next in your Bible, and I'm doing this canonically. In other words, I'm go- doing it so that you can turn from left to right, left to right, and I want you to go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And this is another grand facet of the fear of the Lord. And I say this is a grand facet of it. This is another way of getting at it. It's like, a, it's like this fear of the Lord is a diamond and you're turning the diamond over and you're seeing every glorious facet, every color and every hue of the beauty of that diamond we call the fear of the Lord. And in Psalm 2, of course, it's talking about how the Lord's anointed and we know him now as none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming again. And in Psalm 2.10, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Didn't we just read that in Job 28.28? The fear of the Lord is wisdom. O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Now, if you're just reading your Bible, your English Bible, and you're reading that, you've probably read it a hundred times, a thousand times, and when you're thinking of fear, you're thinking of dread. You're thinking of this terror. Because he is warning, he's warning the rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. But I want you to know something. Look at the diamond now and the facet as it turns, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. And what's the next phrase? And rejoice with trembling. Now I ask you, in juxtaposition of those two phrases, rejoice with trembling. Does that strike you as a little odd? Rejoice with trembling? You and I know the experience of trembling, and it ain't so fun. It doesn't seem glorious and mighty and encouraging. It doesn't seem like uh, the idea of trembling is anything but bad. Well, remember the fear of the Lord. The idea of the healthy dread of God. Healthy dread. It's life-giving. It's, it's health-producing Oh, it's a dread, I grant you that, and there is trembling, I grant you that, because he's the transcendent one, 
And like Peter in that boat, get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. When I see you in your majestic glory, when I see you in your miracle working, yes, but we rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. That means do homage to the Son. That means revere the Son. That means serve the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, enviable, happy are all who take refuge in Him. Do you see what it's telling us? And of course, yes, it is for the O kings of the earth, and, and they are warned to be wise. But if you serve the Lord with fear, in other words, if the kings of the earth were to get on their knees and acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ upon the earth and upon their own lives, and if they were doing homage to the Son by kissing him in obedience and loyalty, they would be rejoicing with trembling. And if they don't do that in the here and now, they will do that in the hereafter. So this is, a, this is an amazing point that the Bible is making for us here, that there is a kind of, of trembling and a kind of homage to the Son, a kind of kiss of obedience that can be rejoiced over in and through. And I love the fact that it says, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blessed. It might even be best translated, envious are those who take refuge in Him. Not just happy, not just a a kind of emotional response. Oh, there is emotion there, yes, but it's blessed, envious. Why? Because we are rejoicing with trembling at the true God. We'll watch this again. Go over to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. I'm just taking you through not even every passage, but just a few to whet your appetite as you think about this concept of the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, giving reverence to Him, kissing Him, uh, standing in awe of His presence. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I know some people are going to say, look, I just read that. You just quoted that in Psalm, in Job 28, 28. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why is it repeated so often? Why 150 times or more is the idea of the fear of the Lord mentioned because we so easily forget? And perhaps because we become so familiar, our familiarity breeds contempt. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it, boy, that's so good. You you just don't don't acknowledge that in a moment. You you just don't say, yeah, 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 I got that. The Lord Lord is to be feared. I, I understand. Move on. Next sermon series, please. No. All who practice it have a good understanding. I submit to you that you and I do not understand the fear of the Lord or any other doctrine of the Bible unless we're practicing it, unless it's the habit of our life. Oh, we're going to stumble in many ways. We're going to fall. We're going to forget. It's going to become too familiar. But if we keep on thinking and brooding and memorizing and meditating and marinating on this concept of the fear of God, it can be radically life changing. His praise endures forever. 
How about Psalm 115? Psalm 115, just a couple of psalms over. Look at verse 12. I'm just giving you highlights here. Psalm 115, 12. The Lord has remembered us. That's that eminence, isn't it? The Lord's remembered us. He, he's come down and he, and he knows our frame and he knows how faulting and stumbling and bumbling we are. Uh, he, he knows us. He, he's remembered us. He will bless us, the Bible says. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who, what? Fear the Lord. Both the small and the great. Both the kings of the earth, all human authorities, and the smallest someone who thinks they're no one. This is, this is all bound up, my friends, in the fear of the Lord. Go to Psalm 128. This is something that perhaps your little family has read and you've rejoiced in Psalm 128 because it's about this blessing of the family. Psalm 128, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. I submit to you that this mini-series of mine is an attempt to say we've got to practice this, we've got to walk in the ways of the fear of the Lord. Why? Because blessed is everyone who does so. Look at verse 4. Behold, thus shall the man, any man, all men, be blessed who fears the Lord. Blessed, enviable, rejoicing, Yes, even trembling, trembling in the presence of the Almighty. Look at Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is, and here's another element, forgiveness, that you may be what? Feared. Now, don't think afraid. Don't think anxiety. Don't think panic. Think fear in this sense. Revere. I fear the Lord because I revere the Lord. I, I revere Him. I love Him. There's adulation in my heart because He's given me the forgiveness of my sins. How about Psalm 145? Psalm 145. Glorious Psalter gives us again and again the taste of the fear of the Lord. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. These are all the, the attributes of God that are being praised. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. Think of that word awesome in the sense of reverence, reverence and awe, and I will declare your greatness. See, that's that transcendent sense of the almightiness of God and all of his works, and so I will stand in awe of him. Look at verse 18 of Psalm 145. The Lord is near. Oh, there's imminence. You see, we've just talk, been talking about the transcendence of the Almighty, and now we're talking about the eminence of the Almighty. The Lord is near to all who call on Him. Boy, this would be a great memory psalm, wouldn't it? To keep accentuating in our hearts both the transcendence of the Almighty and the eminence of the Almighty. The Lord is near 
to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them, delivers them. The Lord preserves all who love him. But notice the contrast, but all the wicked he will what? Destroy. Why? Because to choose as an act of your will not to fear the Lord, but to fear man, fear yourself, uh, give yourself adulation, this self-adulation that I'm in charge. I'm the boss of my life. You can't tell me what to do. I don't believe in a God. I don't believe he's real. I believe you and that organized religion of yours, you've made him up. All the wicked he will destroy. You know, this is actually a parallel verse to Psalm or to uh, Proverbs 29, 25, isn't it? The fear of man brings a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be safe, secure. This is a parallel. This is a verse, Psalm 145, 18 to 20. This is a passage on God-fearers versus man-fearers. It's right there. It's easy to see. The the God-fearers are those who call on him, who call on him in truth, who have desires fulfilled in him because we adore him, we We revere him, we cry out to him, and he delivers us. But the man-fearers are those wicked people whom he will destroy. This is the wisdom literature for the ages, my friend. You want to be wise. You, 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 You young people, I know you think you've got the rest of your life to live. I know you think that the rest of us with the gray hair and the gray beards have lost a step. And that may be true. But the young people in my hearing, what does Proverbs 1, 7 say? Just the next book over. What does Proverbs 1, 7 say, my friends? You young people, listen clearly, listen carefully. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And what do fools do? Here's the contrasting parallel. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Don't do it. Don't do it in your young years. You'll reap a whirlwind of trouble. And this is, this is another contrast between a God-fearer and a man-fearer. Who's the God-fearer? The fear of the Lord. The person who believes in the fear of the Lord. What are they doing? They're beginning with knowledge, and they're going to continue to accumulate knowledge as they practice it all their life long. What do fools do? They despise wisdom and instruction. That's a man-fearer. That's a person who fears man. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. If you, if you go after the words, my son, if you receive my words, Proverbs 2, 1, you make your ear attentive to wisdom, if you incline your heart to understanding, if you call out for it for insight, if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it as silver, and if you search for it as for hidden treasures, verse 5 says, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Why the repetition? Forgetfulness and familiarity. That's why. That's why. Do, do, you, do you believe in God? Do you love God? Do you revere God? If you do, it's the very beginning, middle, and end of all wisdom. Look at chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 10. 
Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I can see it, and even with some young people, yes, I see that. Same song, fourth verse, I've got it. Please, let's move on. Tell me something I don't know. Well, because of forgetfulness and familiarity, we've got to be reminded over and over and over again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. How about chapter 15? Chapter 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. And now here's another facet of the diamond. And humility comes before honor. You see what you're saying when you're contrasting the fear of man and the fear of the Lord is that humility is going to be marked by someone who fears the Lord. You're humble. You know you don't have the faculties that you need on your own to live life as you should. You say, I'm a pretty smart cookie. I've got faculties. Come on. Who gave you those faculties? Who created you? And the person who created you, the very person of God himself, Yahweh, is also saying, don't mess with the human understanding of this world and trash the gifts I've given you. You could have a PhD in the fear of man and go straight to hell. Humility comes before honor. No wonder Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man brings a snare. No wonder it tells us that a person who trusts or fears in the Lord will be safe and secure. Now, because that's true and because we've just barely scratched the surface of this fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, 150 times, and if you go back to this Abel and Cain demonstration, uh, Abel is the, is the uh, supra-example of the righteousness of man. He, he is accepted by man. His, his offering was accept, uh, is accepted by God. His offering was accepted by God. He's living in the fear of God. He loves God with all of his heart. And Cain did not. Cain loved himself. Cain feared man. That is, in the sense, he revered man. He revered himself. He wouldn't let God be trifled with, or so he thought, and so what he desired to do was to say, I'll show him, and he rose up and killed his brother. We've studied that, haven't we? And he killed his brother in rage and murderous hatred, and he then becomes, unlike Abel, the pinnacle example of righteousness like some of the other great saints that we read about. But Cain becomes the arch example of the fear of man, murderous hatred. Doesn't love his brother, slew his brother. And then he tried to even say in God's own face with with the knowledge that God knew, where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? That's, That's insolent pride. This is... This is why you and I see this this Abel-Cain storyline all through the Bible where Abel is being mentioned as this righteous brother, not not sinless, we'll see that in a moment, not sinless, but righteous, 
because God bestowed righteousness on him. God was graciously favorable toward Abel, but Cain was a murderous, hating man, and God did not accept his offering, and Cain did not accept God, and he lived in the fear of man, in the revere of man, and Cain lived as a person who's that arch example of murderous hatred all through the Bible, and the storyline proves it. You say, where does it prove it? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. In the remaining time that we have, I'm going to show you this. Hebrews chapter 2, this is the kind of story that's heartbreaking and yet so very instructive. You want to talk about the fear of man in Proverbs 29, 25? Now I'm going to show you the fear of death. The fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14. Since, therefore, the children, that means all of mankind, share in flesh and blood, that means all of us are human beings, we put on flesh and blood, that's how we were created, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. In other words, he became human. That, that's a purpose clause, that, so that for the very purpose that he, he condescended from the glories of heaven to put on his humanity that through death he might destroy. You say, destroy? This blessed Jesus, this, this gentle and lowly person destroys? Yes, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil. We could say it like this. Jesus Christ And one of the reasons, one of the assignments that he came into the earth was to destroy the destroyer. And for that, I'm so grateful. To destroy the destroyer. What do you mean the destroyer? Verse 15. And that he, Jesus, would deliver, don't miss that word, deliver all those who through, here it is, fear of death. He would deliver all those from the devil and his snares through the fear of death. Why? Because they were subject to it in lifelong slavery. But what a, what, a, what a banner verse. I mean, just put fear of man as the banner at the top of the page. What are the attributes of the fear of man? Here's one of them. Satan and his cunning all the way back in the garden, all the way with Cain himself. One of the chief attributes is that Satan has every single person who doesn't know Jesus Christ personally in the slavery of lifelong death grip. People fear death. Isn't it true? I mean, you talk to people. I'll have interesting conversations with people on planes or at a restaurant or wherever I can talk to someone for more than a few minutes and I say, what do you think about death? That's pretty morbid. And someone might say, I don't, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. In fact, I'll even come up with uh, euphemisms and phrases where I don't have to even use the word death. Passed on. Uh, went to the big man upstairs. Um, Someone is not any longer here with us. 
I mean, all kinds of ways not to acknowledge the truth that there is a word and a concept and a reality that's called death. It's true. It's it's there. It's a fact. And that's why they don't want to talk about it because Satan, the devil, has the power of death and who keeps people in the grip of death, the fear of death, and they're subject to it in lifelong slavery. I know this is not just talking about Christians who sometimes themselves have anxious thoughts about death. Why? Because Jesus came to deliver us from that. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps, does Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, all believers. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the people. He's destroying the work of the destroyer by making propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the people. And for us, my friends, as believers, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Wow! What an encouragement. And you know, the fear of man, this gripping fear, this fear of death, not just the fear of man that brings a snare, but the fear of death that brings lifelong slavery Here's the warning, and the warning is in chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is a quote directly from Psalm 95. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You know what he's saying? They were gripped by Satan, the cunning one, living perpetually in the slavery of death all their life long. They lived in the grip and fear of death. And they chose to do it. They chose to do it. No wonder the writer to Hebrews, and by the way, the writer to Hebrews who's written these truths for us is also the preacher, and this is, close as we can tell by many's affirmation, this is probably one of the most, if not the most, in fact, it probably is the most full and complete sermon that we have in the New Testament. All the other sermons are, uh, are little bite-sized ones, just, just making points here and there, even the sermons from the book of Acts. Some of them are fairly long. None of them are 13 chapters. And, and this, this preacher is preaching a sermon. You think I go long? This guy's preaching for 13 chapters. And so what's his application of what he's just written? Here's his application, verse 12. Take care, brothers. He's preaching. He's preaching at you right now. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart like those forefathers in the wilderness who tested God, who didn't want to fear him, revere him. I tell you, if you've got an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, I'm going to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says in verse 17, 
Was it not with those who sinned, those in the wilderness, those that Moses tried to lead, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter their proper rest because of unbelief. And I say it's like Cain. It's like Cain. He's an arch example. He's one of those. He hated God. He hated his brother. And he was the first son ever born to human parents. And right out of the chute, he slew his brother. No wonder the storyline takes his name all the way through. Now, you remember I said to you, there's the fear of man, the fear of death, and the fear of punishment upon death. And you remember I said in the first message, and Cain is mentioned everywhere. And you're going to say, because you, you definitely remember I told you that, right? Everybody remembers that. Not a one person has forgotten it because you listen to everything I say. You say, and I read this, and I read it when you were reading it, and I don't see anything about Cain. Remember, this is a sermon, and Cain's listed in Hebrews 11. Go there. It took him a while to talk about Cain, but he did talk about him, and he talked about Abel too, and this is that great hall of faith, Hebrews 11, verse 4, by faith, Hebrews 11, 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. There's Cain, there's Abel, through which Abel was commended as righteous God favored him with righteousness, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and of course, by contrast, he did not with Cain. And through his faith, speaking of Abel, though he died, he still speaks. You say, what was the difference? Abel was granted faith. Cain was a reprobate. He wanted his sin. He didn't want God in his life. I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? No wonder verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then he gives Noah as an example. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, notice this, my friends, in reverent Fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. God granted him the favor of such righteousness. Cain, not so. Not so. Why? Because Cain was gripped in the lifelong slavery of the fear of death. He he revered himself. He didn't care a thing about his brother. And when his brother agitated him, and when God agitated him by not accepting his sacrifice, Cain rose up and slew his brother and then shook his fist in the face of a holy God. There's no fear of God before his eyes. And there's one other mention of Abel here, and by contrast, Cain. Look at chapter 12, talking about the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that's to come, the new heavens and new earth, the place where all righteous persons dwell. And it says there in Hebrews chapter 12, 
Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal, festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn. This is, this is heaven, folks. The firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and you've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Everybody who's in heaven now is bodiless. That's why it says the, the spirits of the righteous are being made perfect. They were perfect when they were ushered there, and one day we'll all get our bodies in the resurrection of the dead. And then it says, verse 24, and to Jesus, and please don't miss this, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, his sprinkled blood, his vicarious atonement, his propitiation, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You say, well, you said Abel was a righteous man. Yes, he was righteous, but he wasn't sinless. He, he needed an atonement. He needed a propitiation, a satisfaction. He needed his sins forgiven. And God, through Christ, through that sprinkled blood, retroactively applied the very blood of Christ to Abel's life. And we will see him in heaven. Why? Because while he was righteous but not sinless, Jesus is righteous and sinless. The only candidate for the one who could be the satisfactory atonement for sin, and that's why his blood speaks a better word. And doesn't it say in verse 28 as it closes that chapter, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, and notice this, with reverence and awe. There it is, my friends. If you've ever wondered, where did I get the idea of holy reverence and healthy dread? It is right there, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Oh, my dear friends, if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, and if you're not relying on his better sprinkled blood, you have no part with him. You have no relationship to him. And I call upon you right now, where you are, whoever's listening to my voice, to come to a place of saying, if I don't bow in allegiance with reverence and awe to Jesus Christ, I will live the rest of my life in both the fear of man and the fear of death. But if you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you've been released from such fear of death and the fear of man by the better blood than Abel's Jesus and the sprinkling of his blood as an atonement for you and for me. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, what a truth. What a truth from the Word of God. That all of these, all of these poetic books, all of this wisdom literature, all of the, the wisdom and understanding that's been given to us is that the fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom, to be in reverent awe and worship of our Savior for having that righteous, sinless blood atone for us, a satisfaction for our innumerable, uncountable sins. 
Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he provided such satisfaction, propitiation, and that he has come to this earth to destroy the destroyer, the one who keeps people in lifelong bondage to the fear of death. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together and thank you for the marvel of your word as we see the storyline of the fear of man versus the fear of God. May it continue to challenge our souls and over these next two Lord's Days, may we continue to see this storyline that makes it clear that we must run to Christ, run to his salvation, receive his offer of forgiveness and worship him by kissing the Son and rejoice with trembling. May it be so for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior, to the praise of our great God, Yahweh, and through the power of the Spirit, we ask it. Amen and amen.